Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the SWW Show. I'm Mike and today we have with me, I think it's the fourth person to have as a repeating guest, uh, <laughs> which, which is impressive, I'll give you that. We do we did have one three-time guest, so you're in the two-time club, I'm sorry. Uh, we welcome back <laughs> Steven to talk about Wave Crash. So Steven, hey, first off, how are you doing on this Thursday evening? Over in Michigan? Uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, we just got our first real snowfall of the year, so uh, hopefully it doesn't get too much worse. I like, I'm like, i not care if the light dusting for the Christmas time uh, makes it feel festive, but any more than that and uh, just starts to feel you know more of a, a hazard than a, than a help. But no, I'm doing pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm just you live in Michigan. You do understand, like you do get snow, right? You don't get this like light dust in that, like people who people who are like yeah, I'm I mean, in Tennessee. Past, I get like a light like, dust. <laughs> the past uh, last years was pretty mild overall. Like the few years before that, it was bad. But like over the last year, I don't remember it ever being like. I think I had to really shovel like once or twice. It was um wasn't too bad. So it, it can it can vary, but. uh yeah, it's more of just like the one time I really have to go anywhere is going to be this holiday time, and then after that's going to be back to uh, to holding up in quarantine for like another few months. So it's just hoping I can survive like that drive, and then I'll be good. Oh, you think it's only going to be a few more months? That's beautiful. I'm really, I'm really glad there's still some people are optimistic in this world. <laughs> I know. I mean, like. Because, I mean, we're, we're fortunate. We're one of the countries that is actually going to. Uh, get the vaccine this year so um yeah i'm thinking summer's looking good summer's gonna be a good time perfect well i i, I hope you're right but in the meantime at least you now have a product soon to be on the steam market already was available on itch for is it a year year and a half uh for a while like, I, I think the first version that i put on itch was actually like 2017 at this point but Jesus, I forgot, like, we also talked to you, like, hey, we're going to this game for, like, years. I'm like, yeah, I forget that, like, this has been, like, your thing for years. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been my one, like, um, ongoing project. Like, it's one of those things, it, it could have been released sooner. Like, if I had been working on this, like, in a full-time capacity, it probably would only took, you know, like, about, um, maybe 18 months or so. But uh, that's not how it works. In this case, it's been, like, my... Uh, third priority, I've had the, the day job. I've been working from home since March and uh, also been started teaching, taught my first uh, semester of game design these past few months. So this is kind of like the uh, the night job after the second night job. I don't know. To, I, I always, I like that. I like the idea because like, like I'm in the age too. It's always like this, you always have a thing. You're like, you're like I'm soon going to be that teacher I had in college, aren't I? Where it's like you go there and you're like, yes, hi, I I am person and like i am also making indie game on the side please buy my indie game let me use this as an example of what great indie game design is <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I was pretty humble i think i only used my game as a reference um well initially to show like the the process of going from like a design doc to prototype to like marketable thing and then another time um can't remember what the other example I used was for, but yeah, so it's only been a few times when I actually referenced my own works, but uh, also did reference like the works of some friends and whatnot. Um, and I referenced uh, 
Sagebrush and Mage Quit a couple times. So uh, it, it helps to have friends who do um, uh, work that's varied from yours to be able to like you know brought in your your idea. It's not we're all working on like very similar uh, genres or types of games, so it's been cool. You know that I could I see that as very helpful, especially when you have students who are like I I don't care about your game, which has yeah. to also I, mean, I still say with has to be part of the first time you're like oh. I mean, in this case, like, the students are pretty receptive to most videos because, like, that's what they're there for. They're, you know, they're there to learn. Uh, I mean, the only time I've found, like, a crowd that, um, like, in general wasn't feeling it was kind of like uh, when I was trying to, um, or, the, like, the one time when I did have a uh, more mainstream uh, streamer cover it, um, just through part of the, the Taco Bell indie game uh, garage thing that I had won. Um, uh, so yeah, I got some time from like a, a larger name streamer and, uh, they weren't feeling it just cause it wasn't his normal, like he normally just does, you know, uh, like Halo custom matches and like stuff like that. So to jump into like a non-shooter game of any type wasn't really going to work out. Um, so it was a bit of a bummer, but at the same time, like I understood like, yeah, it's not what they're, they're here for, you know, like streamers have like their particular audience they cultivate, uh, the particular thing, you know, they're expecting to see. So if like, if you play, um, exclusively, you know, Minecraft, uh, if your uh, viewers probably aren't going to want to watch you play like a grand strategy game or whatever, it's like that's not what they're there for. They're not here to watch you play Civilization. So, uh, just how it goes. No, that I think that's that's a fair critique, and it's always very interesting when marketing. You're always like, are you sure your audience cares? <laughs> so yeah, so I'm kind of curious. So we were talking about for I think it's been we'll say 12, 13 months since we sat down and talked about Wave Crash and. So I was kind of looking at it and this stuff before. I think at the time then, you had, I want to say it was like six fighters in the game, or like five, something like I that. I believe at that point, uh, I can't remember the exact timeline. I, I believe it was six or seven at that point. So it might have been six. That's what I was kind of leaning. I remember, because I think now you're launching with your final Steam version at ten characters? Yeah, yeah, that was like the last thing I was kind of um, waiting on. I was wanting to get to around ten Um because yeah, you know, the way the way Brave Crash is set up, uh, since your your match blocks are different colors, uh, should I do like a brief rundown of what the game is, or would that be helpful? In case, cool. yeah. Cool. Yeah. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, just probably you know most of you, uh, Wave Crash is a uh, multiplayer puzzle brawler. It's a head-to-head puzzle brawler where you match blocks to smash faces, um, and so it kind of combines elements of um, like a, a Tetris or a Bejeweled. Uh, with elements of like a one of the you know sort of stripped down like uh, party fighter type games, I uh, kind of looked at like uh, Nidhogg or like Lethal League as um as references for things that kind of incorporate uh, fighting game mechanics, but in like a a more digestible, streamlined way. Um, so you know, no complicated button inputs, uh, no need to like uh, practice combos or whatever. Um, and so within the game, yeah, there's five different colors of blocks, and each character has like a specific color that's like their affinity. They want to uh, collect, or they want to match up that one in order to do their special attacks. Um, so I wanted to make it a nice round, uh, two characters for each color. Um, so that's kind of what, uh, yeah, that was like the last box to really check. Um, uh, right now, the last things I'm doing to finalize are um, adding a uh, like simple unlock system to get like new uh, color palettes. I was kind of using, um, looking at uh, Lethal League, um, the game Lethal League, for uh, reference of, like, the amount of content to include in the game. And in that game, you pretty much have everything right off the bat. You know, the game's, like, pretty uh, pretty straightforward. You don't have to, like, unlock new content except for uh, palettes for characters. 
And I really like that feature. Because um, I don't really see it as a thing like you're going to want to, you know, specifically grind out the character palettes, but it's just like a nice little bonus. Like you complete a match and like, hey, you unlocked a new thing. Uh, I feel like that's, it's kind of a, a given that games of like whatever genre are going to include something like that nowadays. You're going to have some way of like marking progress. Uh, so that's just what I'm doing for that. Um, but yeah, more, more or less from the last time you saw the game, like it's it's been fairly in like a fairly stable state. There's been some like behind the scenes changes to like uh, tune up, you know, controls um, and like custom controls and things like that. Uh, but the basic like rules of the game have made, been pretty consistent over time. Uh, and it's one of the things where like I, I see it as uh, I could do more. Like that's I, I, there's always like more content I could add, but I feel like it's in a place where it's. Um, it's good for like a complete product, and uh, if it does happen to catch on, if it does happen to like, you know, build some type of audience, uh, make some sort of momentum that way, then I'd be down for uh, adding like additional content in the future. Um, I always have more characters to do or more stage ideas. Uh, they're like the two main facets to expand the game. So there's there's always plenty more I could do there. Uh, and if not, that's fine too. Honestly, I, I'm like I'm proud of where the game's at, and I just. Uh, Right to clear up space to move on to other things. I got yeah. So we'll kind of get into kind of. I'm kind of curious because you have just because how long you've chunk spent time on this project. Are you getting this weird like feeling of like oh my baby's going the world now and like I I am like somewhat lost of what to do next. I'm not really. I mean, like I've had that's a um. I haven't been working on this like consistently throughout that time period. There have been times where I've taken like. Most recently, yeah, when I was, um, started teaching, I did, didn't work for a bit because I was just working on like the uh, putting together the curriculum um, and everything uh, for my class. Um, but not there's always like other things that I can jump onto. Even now, like um, I'm helping uh, to organize a an online uh, game developers convention for February. Um, it's called a GLGX, uh, the Great Lakes uh, Game Expo, um, and so that's something that I can then you know, jump on and spend some time with. I mean, it, plus, even after launching, there's always more to do. Uh, I still need to, like, resubmit um, to get on the Switch. Uh, want to submit to be on uh, PS5 and Xbox uh, Series X as well. So I need to get on that. So if, if I get it, you know, if I'm able to get dev kits and acceptance for that, that's going to be another uh, few months of work just to handle, like, the port and to, you know, abide by all their, their guidelines to get published on those stores. Um, so yeah, like that, now, nowadays, like releasing a game is never just releasing a game. It's it, like maybe way, way back when, when, yeah, games were things that were on discs or cartridges and they're just like something you buy from the store and put in your gaming box. Uh, that was the case, but, uh, no games ever just launched anymore. Is that, that's kind of interesting. So is that kind of your, so you said originally your post-lease plan was tentative on the successfulness of the game, right? Is that kind of your yeah. like immediate plan? Though you're like, I'm just gonna like this is at this point a me thing. I'm gonna be like, okay, go to the switch next, go to this next. Just kind of like spread your game out there and just kind of seeing if it hits somewhere. Yeah, basically, it's just um, you know, while I have it uh done, I might as well like switch has always been part of the plan. Uh, I have applied a couple times before, but um, that was during uh like the busier you know launch period of the switch um and. They can't tell you like why you get rejected, but uh, this is my suspicion is just like the lack of uh, a publisher name or like existing you know console developer credits. Uh, obviously, they're not going to like you know they, they probably receive like 
thousands of submissions a week. So they're not going to go through each one with a fine tooth comb. They're for a lot of them are just going to look at it and be like, is this a sequel to something that was successful? Does this person have a backing of a major company? If not, then, uh, you know, just pass it along. But now I think it's reached a point where, you know, it's the switch has become uh, like there, there've been enough uh, saturation of the store where they're not necessarily um, as picky as they were. And uh, it's been a, adopted well enough that, um, you know, they don't have to just kind of look for the established properties. Uh, so I, I feel pretty confident that it'll make it this time. Um, but we'll just have to see. You know, that is, so it's the opposite of like this PlayStation stories where the joke is that like your game runs perfect. Welcome. Because you open in the PlayStation store like any day and you're like, why is there 20 new games coming out? Even in the PlayStation stores case, like I, this is just speculation, but I do feel like a lot of the times, like um, some of the games get on there just because of like connections through the developers, because I know, yeah, like there, there have been, oh, what was it? it was like Legend of Black Tiger or whatever, <laughs> where they even they even spotlighted it on their YouTube channel, and I feel like that had to have been because there was some like existing relationship between the developer and someone who has you know the capacity to highlight things, because it, not not every game gets shown on the PlayStation YouTube channel, like not every trailer gets uh, gets rebroadcast through those official channels, so there has to be something that separates them, and I. I mean, I I can't really be too mad because I also got like the positive side of that through uh, Steam back before they switched Greenlight over to just uh, be like an open donation to get your game on, and there was like a, a vetting process, uh, and you know people had to vote on games that they wanted to see accepted. Uh, no one knew exactly how games got chosen. Um, it was speculated you just had to be like a top percentage to get in, but when Wavecrash was uh, accepted into Steam, like it wasn't anywhere near any kind of like top or trending list. So I think at some point there's just a person who got to choose, you know, what games get accepted. So like, and that scenario, at least I did have, you know, some advantage there. So, uh, so you can only complain about the system so much when it works for you. I understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it benefited me the one time. Um, and in this case, not so much, but, uh, I feel like, you know, this next time, uh, just, just off my, um, uh, my pitch deck, um, and it should be good to get. Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about, so as we talk about when we talk, I will say there was six or seven, like you said, characters at the time, kind of. So that means you have a few new ones. Can we spotlight either what is one of your favorite characters? So like I see, like I'm looking at your thing now, and like your 10th one you announced was like, okay, Hawk Justice, which is, I like the name of the record a lot. <laughs> um, I'm kind of curious, kind of like, what are some of your favorite like later characters that you've made in recent times to, like going into the final uh-huh. moment of the game? I mean, I can't really, I can't really say like my favorites. Like, I can do just um, and I can just do like a rundown, like reverse order of like what I liked about them. But uh, but yeah, as far as favorites, like that, like if there's a character that I liked less, I, I just wouldn't do it that way. I guess that's the thing. Like, um, I, I don't know how other creators feel about it, but it's like, uh, I, I'm sure it's different if if your game has like a huge roster. If you if you're making like a um. If if you're making like Street Fighter Four and you end up having like 40 characters in the game at the end of it, uh, it the, yeah, there probably are some that you just personally don't care for as much. But in this case, because like I'm the sole game designer, uh, or yeah, you know, if it's like League of Legends, where like yeah, you have different character designers, so like they have different responsibilities. So maybe you obviously prefer your characters over other people's. Uh, but in this case, no, I like all of them. Um, Hawk Justice was cool because. Uh, I always wanted a Luchador character in, in the game I made. Uh, I've always been a fan of Luchadors in video games. Um, in, in Virtual Fighter Five, which is the one conventional fighting game that I was ever decent at, I played El Blaze. Um, 
He was just really cool. He, you know, had a bunch of fun rushdown and grapple moves, and he was very, uh, you know, just just very over the top and just had a cool style. Um, El Fuerte and uh, Street Fighter Four, who I didn't care for, like gameplay wise, so much. Just because, like, to play El Fuerte at a high level is mostly about doing a lot of footsies. You're just doing like his like dash move, like back and forth to try to like space out your opponent, and it just didn't look good. Like the, uh, a fighting game character is basically just spending time like running back and forth in place just looked awkward to me but uh um so yeah in, in my game hawk justice uh he has um every character in wave crash is defined by like their uh special like passive trait and then their active special attack uh hawk justice's trait is a uh, close quarters um so when he attacks close to the opponent attacking um this was a, a really unique mechanic uh, in the game because um it's the only special attack that actually like moves the character most other special attacks uh you remain in place and the attack just happens but this one has like a movement element to it so i had to change the way the uh attacks are handled in the background and then also the fact that it takes advantage of uh the three-dimensional space of the game it's the one time when like height is used in the game everything else is on like a, a 2d uh space so like it was, it was really unique in those two senses um, so it, it was, it took a bit to implement it, but it was, it was really fun overall. Um, do you and... feel, so 10 characters are you saying, do you feel yeah. that they're like evenly balanced? Or like, like obviously that's your goal. That's always your goal, right? To roughly be like, I yeah, mean, anyone can face good at it, anyone. It's, well, okay. So I was going to talk about like on the top of game balance. Um, this has always been an interesting thing because I feel like it's the, the one part of games that like players are often most like you know vocal about but then also have like the least understanding of oh yeah 100 um, percent. ideally yeah ideally balance should be like within a specific range like you're, you're like the sweet spot ideally you want like every matchup to be at most like plus or minus five percent to win so like uh your choice of character could have like a you know plus five or minus five effect on the outcome and then the rest of it is like up to just your ability to play um but, uh, but the, the, the problem is, like, it's not really so much about the outcomes of the... Because it's about the, the feeling of the game. Because um, players, uh, as a developer, you, you can acquire information over hundreds of matches. You can look at statistics and see, like, here's how it tracks across, like, all skill levels. Here how, here's how it tracks between matchups. Um, but then, as a player, you play one match at a time. You only get to play the single game. And you only get to process the feelings of a single game. So um, a matchup, the, the example I use in um, in my class of like an example of uh, looking at just outcomes but not the feeling is imagine you have a fighting game and there's a character called the Gambler. Uh, and the Gambler only has one move. He, he flips a coin and on heads he wins and on tails he loses. Um, so ultimately, that's a 50% win rate across all skill levels. That's amazing. That's, that's unheard of. It's great. Uh, but it feels bad because regardless of whether he wins or loses, 
you still didn't get to play the game. You still didn't get the, like, the feeling of being able to like, play an engaging match, which is really the goal of balance, is to have the feeling be engaging regardless of your initial pick. Um, so I feel, I feel like in that capacity, wave crash characters are, are balanced. Yeah, we, we had some problems with um, uh, Hana in particular. Is uh, She's a character who was designed to be kind of like a... Um, uh, spammer, like you just like focus on like attacking and less on making combos. So initially, her special trait was um, you only need two blocks uh, to match two blocks to attack compared to the normal three blocks or more. But uh, her blocks would fall slower, so it encouraged you to move around more and attack with smaller groups. Um, but I actually had some feedback from t- some people who uh, were playing the game like really hardcore, like within their households, some like college students who uh, had to ban out. Uh, Hana, because they just realized like she's just the best. She's just too good, um, and so I, I reflected on that and um, I ended up adjusting it. So because uh, I re- what I really wanted, I really wanted to encourage her to be like a, a running gun style play. I really wanted you to actually like, focus on movement over matching. Uh, but the way they were finding to play her optimally was just to attack and like focus on like one part of the board, block out your opponent, and then move on. And so like you wouldn't have to run around. It turns out like her her downside wasn't affecting her enough. So I adjusted it to instead be uh, her blocks now fall much slower uh, unless you're moving. So like if you do stand still, uh, you're going to have to wait for like a few seconds at a time for another attack, which is a, a huge amount of time in the game uh, compared to if you are constantly moving, it accelerates the speed of the blocks until they eventually can fall at like a regular speed um, until you stop moving again. So it's, it does. Uh, and I feel like that's had the proper effect of um, leaving her, uh, leaving her pout still feeling good to play. Like it still is an interesting play style to focus more on uh, just a, a flurry of attacks rather than like setting up things, um, but still uh, bringing her in line with the other characters. It's very interesting. So I kind of jump back to what you kind of said about the, the flip of the court, right? And I think one of the design principles I once I heard one time and I really love kind of on that, even this question of balance in your characters is every player hates a coin flip when they get tails. Or, or if the opponent gets heads. A player likes the randomness when they feel it gave them an advantage. Because inherently, mentally, you feel that you have the advantage when it comes to your favor. Well, I think it also depends on how the, the coin flip is um, is represented. Because like, in this case, in, in my extreme case of the gamble, like, either way, even if it lands on you winning, like you still didn't get to play. And ideally, like most players, like yeah, they do want to win, but they also... Want to play? You can think about it like another way. Um, if you made a game where like you can either it's it's like a shooter, and it's like you can either run and gun try to get the most kills, or if you can stand in one place and not do anything, and like either and that can be just as effective. Like some people do that, but it won't really to a better game because they'll they'll still get the win, but they won't feel as good because they didn't enjoy the win. Like it's I still didn't do anything to do this. I just didn't touch my controller. So I think the um, example I always think of is the XCOM percentages. A player always feels bad when they miss a 90% shot, but if they hit that 15% shot, they feel like a genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a big difference with, like, um, that, that's the, a lot of the fun things you can do with uh, single-player games, obviously, is that, like, yeah, there's not, not another person on the other side. to uh, So at, at least there's a chance that, like, 100% of the people playing the game can feel good about the outcome, which is... It, it tends to be different from like a multiplayer game where you like, yeah, you have to try to get both people to have fun, which is way harder. <laughs> um, but like, th- there is some randomness in Wave Crash, obviously, because you know the blocks that fall are random. Um, but behind the scenes, even that, I've tried to like mitigate the randomness by uh, 
borrowing the way it works in um, modern iterations of Tetris, where the blocks are pooled. So like in modern Tetris, they uh, create a random set of blocks. Um, so they'll make sure that like every shape is involved in this random set. And then when you get a new block, they pull from that random set until it's out and then you refresh it. So that way you can't end up getting like the same shape over and over again. Um, and I do similar thing with Wave Crash where, yeah, I pull all the colors. So there's a group of at least one of each of the colors in this big old list. I, we need a block. I pull one of the colors out. When the when the uh, list is empty, I get a new random randomized group of colors. Um, so it prevents like chances where you just will you know be served up like a giant mass of one color um, because that that doesn't necessarily like decide a game, but it does influence the game obviously, and it it does feel uh, cheap if like the game starts. You see like oh one person has like just a mass of like fifteen red blocks in their side, and you know what they're going to do first first move so you do you on the back and then so obviously five colors two characters do you favor kind of like okay we have yellow and purple in this game secretly like 50 of the blocks are just going to be yellow and purple or do you kind of let at least like some of those dice kind of roll so as long as it feels even you don't actually make them feel super powerful yeah no I, i leave all that up to just the regular chance it doesn't look at um any of the uh, the characters in the game deciding block spawns. Now, um, there was there, there was one character that I like is on my potential list of like backburner character. Like if the game um, does do well to justify it, that'd be like an, an easy mode character that would uh, limit the the number of uh, block types that spawn on their board. So then in that case, it would check to make sure that it does spawn um, the blocks that the other player needs for their special. Just to not make it like too lopsided. You know, like if it only if it didn't spawn red. And you're playing as like a yo who needs red blocks, then that'd be kind of lame. But but that that was an idea I had for um for a way that could like make the game uh, easier to play and have that be like an attribute of the character, but not necessarily to the extent that it would make it like optimal to play. You know, because it would help definitely to have like a fewer block types. Um, but if that's like the only advantage your character has, while other characters like uh. Momoko, uh, the ninja, she can like run faster. Like that's a, a huge advantage to be able to outrun appeals attacks. And um, so like I, I feel like that kind of is like that would align well in terms of balance to just having it be uh, easier to make matches. But um, like I said, that's that's one that was like a potential. I, I don't think I even I don't think I even added that functionality to the game in the background because there, there are sometimes when I, I'll try out a mechanic first. Um, uh, most recently. Uh, when I was working on Darlene, who's the uh, the character added prior to Hawk Justice, uh, her backstory is she was a, a former uh, like girl motorcycle gang leader, you know, the the, the Japanese style of like the the schoolgirl gangs and whatnot. Um, but now she's living just a quiet life as a as a mom to uh, Hana, another character in the roster, uh, while secretly being like the most physically powerful person in the Wave Crash universe. Um, but originally, one of the mechanics I was, I was bouncing around my head, uh, inspired by this board game called Battlecon. Uh, it's a really fun little like one v one kind of board game, but like it, it doesn't use randomness. It's more about like trying to read your opponent and whatnot. It, I definitely recommend checking it out. But uh, they have a character named uh, King Alexia, and uh, his whole deal is he's really powerful, but he gives opponents uh, these resource chips that they can then spend to boost up their own attack. So it's kind of like he like wants to give you a sporting chance. Like he knows he's so good, he needs to help you. So. Originally, Darlene's mechanic was going to be um, her attacks would like move, either have some sort of advantage, either move faster or hit harder or be harder to defend against. Uh, but in response, she'd give you like wild card blocks. 
uh, that would be easier, that would match up with any other color. Um, so I added that mechanic to the game just to try it out. Uh, I didn't really like the feeling of that as a character mechanic, though. Um, but I still left the mechanic in the in the game, and uh, now it's part of the uh, our most recent uh, stage, Food Fest, uh, where that's the gimmick mechanic for Food Fest, is that wild blocks will spawn, uh, have a lower chance of spawning for each player, but they, they'll still spawn occasionally. And uh, yeah, it's one thing I mentioned. Yeah, like all, every stage in the game has a, I call it a wavy mode. It's just a special gimmick that you can apply uh, to the game, similar to, you know, the way Smash Bros. stages all have their own special thing, so uh, you can play it. So Wavecrash defaults, though, to, like, the the standard mode, whereas, you know, Smash Bros., you have to toggle that on. But, yeah, Wavecrash, by default, stages are just differences in the art and soundtrack. Uh, but then if you want to, you can put on some fun effects, like uh, the blocks randomize every time someone gets hit, or uh, wind blows in one direction or the other, slowing down one side and speeding up the other side. It's just... Just fun things like that. So, I've talked to a lot of people who kind of do either games on the side or at night, right? And I, I honestly think the more you talk about the game, the more I go. I think, especially because of the amount of time you definitely have, you, you have thought of a lot of cases, and I feel that major comment is you definitely understand the market in which you are going for to sell this game. Uh, on a photo level, you're like, this is where this type of player, which is the, like, I call it like the semi-casual smash but not like the hardcore smash people type of atmosphere i find it very interesting of like how much that you've really thought about it the, f- the- yeah i mean it, oh, I'm sorry, dude. Huh. um yeah i mean at this point I, not to be like a downer but like, I, do, I don't expect this to really you know move units exactly uh but because like but on the on the like plus side uh, i also haven't had to like design it around that idea like uh i have I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a job that um can you know sustain uh my side projects and everything so it's been it's been great and um so like when i look at it it's, it's more like what do i want the game to be like what do i think makes the game just you know a more complete experience and stuff like and so i, I yeah i do think that um as far as like you know, you mentioned like the casual smash hog or smash crab. Uh, in my case, like the it was more of a just looking at like I have this set of rules now. Like, what do I want to do with it? It's it's also the same idea behind the you know the creation of the characters. Is every character is like, what's something new and different I can make this game do? Uh, now that I like I have this, you know, because it, it's a fortunate thing with um with puzzle games is that like they're a very versatile skeleton you can layer on. A whole bunch of other stuff like you know there's been puzzle games that've used or like rpgs that've used like match three games as the combat system and there've been like city builders that've done the same thing strategy games that use it it's uh it's, it's a very robust uh platform so it, it's been like okay so i want i've got stages and i want these stages to be uh meaningful somehow so how can i make them uh, actually matter and so it's just all the fun little gimmicks i can think of including uh, the different settings you can use to customize the game rules. Because I, I, I've, uh, through testing or whatever, I've found what I think are the, like, the ideal way to play. Uh, so, you know, the board size is set to uh, 12 by 6, because through playing, that's been, like, the right size to make the game both, like, manageable to read the whole board at one time, while also giving you enough options. Uh, it's set to, like, three hits to win, because that's been, to me, like, the most satisfying amount. But I've also have settings where you can like shrink or scale up the board, or you can um, change the speed setting, or change the time settings, or the amount of hits to win. Um, I added like a tag team mode because uh, I, I noticed like 
I, you know, obviously if you have more than two people, you want more people to be able to jump into the game. So that was a, a fun way to do it. And it's, it gets super chaotic. And like, if you're not uh, well coordinated with your, your teammate, it can be a, a mess, but when you does gel, it works really nice and it's, it's cool to see. Um, so it's, and I, I always liked games that did that. And I feel like it's something we kind of lose now with the, um, as games shift to a more like structured experience type thing where like the company that owns the game also decides how you can play it. Uh, you you kind of lose out on the fun of like being able to start up like a Halo custom match and be like, yo, it's four times speed and low gravity and it's only gravity hammers. And like, but now it's just like, no, we have a playlist of curated modes and you'll play one of those modes because like it's our product and we want you to experience it the way we feel. And I, I think it's fun to let people like break things open. That is a that is I think a good clean way to close that. So if we were looking to go check out Wave Crash, where would we do that? Uh, currently, if you want to check it out now, it's on uh, itch.io. You can uh, wavecrashgame.com will redirect you to the itch.io version. Um, it's also on uh, Steam for um, wishlisting. So you can just go to Steam, search for Wave Crash. I don't know, you know, there's no like quick URL for that because they put it all behind the uh, app IDs. But I'm sure you search and you'll find it. Um, and yeah, I'm aiming to have this up there on uh, January 14th because um, that's my birthday. It just feels like a, a good day to do that. Um, so we shall see. I can't guarantee that it won't be delayed because I feel I have to get it up in time for them to go through whatever review process they have. Um, so it probably gives me like two weeks to like squeeze that in, but that is what I'm aiming for is January 14th. This will be up there. Nice. Well, happy early birthday. I look forward to seeing hey. the final version of Wavecraft and then we can expect Wave, Wave Crash 2, I'd say 2025 based on your current speed. Um, I mean, it was like the ideal dream would be someone finds this and is like, Hey, and we want to publish this. Yeah. It's like, would you do a sequel? And then in that case, it'd probably be like two years. Yeah. We'll see. Nice. Well, thanks again, Stephen, for taking time out of your evening. And go enjoy the rest of your evening. And have a good weekend. Hey, thanks for having me. This episode is partially brought to you by the Humble Choice Program. Did you know Humble Bundle has a great monthly subscription service that lets you get a ton of video games every single month? That's right. From plans range from $5 to 20 bucks a month you get a hold of a bunch of free games they have available to you. And you can use our code down in the description below to go and sign up. It would help our podcast and help you see what great games are available for you this month. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another of these fun, uh, now we named SWW interview shows. Uh, I'm Mike. Uh, sorry uh, that I sound like this. Um, I have a cold. Uh, not COVID, as far as you're able to tell. Uh, based on negative tests, but I have a cold, so I sound a little more nasally than usual. And today I have with me a special guest from, again, across the world. I've been doing a lot of these recently. Uh, could you please tell us your name and the game we're here to talk about? Hi, I'm Timon Muller, and I'm the developer of Hyperventilar, which is a space fantasy RPG, sort of retro-styled. And yeah, I'm happy to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh Kind of to get us started, because I don't know, I was trying to switch and I couldn't find it. What is kind of your background in game development? Have you done a lot of stuff before? Is this kind of like your first game? Um, I've done modding before, so I, I would say this is very much my first game, yes. 
that I've built from the scratch up. That is yeah. always the fun challenge of learning a lot <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah, because you're like, for sure. You're like, oh, it's game development. How hard could it be? What do you mean stuff broke? Ah, uh, well, so like it's interesting because when I started this project. I really wanted to start small, and I never expected it to scale up. And I'm sure that is a thing that a lot of game developers can relate to as well. But yeah, no, I, I never thought, oh, you know, I'm going to make a large open world game. It's just going to be basically a text adventure with some pictures here and there. So I have like your Steam page up on my second monitor. Um, I see very little text for a text adventure game. Ah, exactly. That's because it's not going to be a text adventure game. No, like right now it's, you know, it's going to be more like a Mass Effect style RPG. You'll be able to travel to different worlds. You'll be able to essentially talk to players or not players, like NPCs. And as the player, you will be able to essentially gather lots and lots of quests and lots of influence in this galaxy and it's not as much about like it's not as much about like the skill tree but it is going to be more in depth than just a text adventure so to clarify that you you for all kinds of purposes the sole developer on this game or or do you have like a small team helping even like some pieces Um, of it Okay, so no, I I am pretty much the sole developer. I know there are certain things I'm not very good at. So I have, for instance, I've got a I've got a, a person that developed the the music. Um, actually, it's, it's a group that developed the music that I have commissioned to use. Um, when it comes to like sound design, again, I'm not exactly an expert on in these areas. So that is where I'm probably going to be looking for more like online repositories and also people who who, who are better than me. But apart from that, uh, the programming aspect, which was the aspect I didn't actually know at all when I started on this project, uh, I'm handling entirely on my own. Um, the asset creation is basically the part where I thought I'd be able to do it. Um, the thing is, asset creation takes a huge amount of time. So that that's probably been one of the largest time sinks as well. But that that is another thing that I'm handling entirely by myself. No, that that's that is um always interesting because it's so I, I say the thing that upsets a lot of programmers because I stick to it being programmer myself is to make programming work, you need very little. Uh, to make programming good, you need a lot. Uh, so it's kind of like I always say, like anyone can learn to program stuff, basically, brute the way through it. It's it's making it work efficiently, and I'm kind of assuming that's kind of the journey you've gone through. I've been like, no, no, it's not super hard to like make stuff maybe function. It's making it always work correctly or work efficiently. Yes, yes, for sure. And I think to some degree, the the fact that my journey has been largely about scaling up the project along with my skill level has helped me at least keep it to some manageable degree. Like I never went like, oh, I want to make this thing, but I have no idea how I'm going to do it. Like generally speaking, if I decided to add something to the game, it was because I was like, 
oh, okay, I think I know how to do this now. So that helped. That, that's definitely very helpful of kind of uh, keeping... It's funny because I wonder if that helped you keep stuff like scope and uh, feature creep down because you're like, okay, I'm only pushing to the thing that I only... So like you may be like, here's the system I want, but I can only do a system that I almost know how to do. So I only have to learn so much versus being like, here's a system I have no clue how to conquer. Let's spend 10 days trying to figure out how to even start this. Yeah, yeah no, that's true. Uh, that being said, I, I'd be lying if I said there hadn't been some feature creep here and there. No, obviously, this is called game development. Um, we always yeah, end up yeah. with a game that is somehow twice the scope we want it to be, but ten times smaller than we want it to be, and I'm not quite sure how both happen at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's yeah, very true. Jump into it a bit. So, you are this sci-fi game that's kind of decently story-heavy, it sounds like, and you have a lot of systems behind it. I'm kind of curious if yeah. we could start by kind of jumping into the story for a bit, kind of, and... So what what is this top-level story, and then kind of like, what are your major influences kind of really that made you want to write this? Right. So Hyperventola is a galaxy, essentially. And my initial thought behind it was like, okay, you know, I want to make this galaxy, and I want to be able to like use it to, to dump my stories and my ideas into it. Um, sort of like an open world for me as a developer to write things into. But I also wanted, you know, I wanted there to be like a clear introduction to what this world is. And that is what this first game is supposed to be. Um, I'm not saying there are going to be more games. I don't know yet. Let's see how this goes. But that is sort of my line of thinking. So Hyperventilar is a space fantasy RPG. So it's not pure, hardcore science fiction. It has lots of fantastical elements. It'll be a bit comical here and there. Um, if you're familiar with the works of Terry Pratchett or Douglas Adams, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, those, I would say, are my main inspirations for Hyperventilar. And... Like the backstory of Hyperventilar, how it started, is it actually came from a, a series of short stories that I wrote, like fantasy, pure fantasy short stories set in the land of Meekenwood. And I, I uploaded these to YouTube uh, a few years back. And then at some point I had the idea of, okay, what if I took this fantasy world and like put it in way into the future where they have like spaceships and whatnot. And it took a few years for me to get there, but eventually I followed through on this, on this idea. And so basically, back to the main story, so Hyperventilar, it's like you're the captain of a small cargo vessel in this large open world, relatively not very successful as a, as a captain. Um, but then you find yourself at the center of this time travel incident that may change the entire galaxy. Um, so as the game starts, what well, actually is, is you start in the past. So in the past, there are these wizards, they're conducting this bizarre experiment that goes wrong, and they end up thrusting themselves 2,000 years into the future. And as it so happens, Due to various plot reasons, like I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but due to various plot reasons, where the captain that you are in the game is right then and there in, in 
they sort of link these two time periods and the wizards get thrust into the future. And then you as the captain have to, you have to deal with these wizards and just be like, okay, what the hell is going on here? And, and, and basically from that point on, everything in the story will react not as much to you, the rather insignificant captain, but the fact that you have these wizards on board your ship that nobody understands how they do the things they do. And like, it will sort of create this, this, this ripple in the, the politics and the reality of, of the hyperventilar galaxy. That is very, I think it's a very interesting twist. So like inherently, I think when I, when I expect to hear like a sci-fi story, I always feel like, I think modern times people pull from stuff, either a Star Wars Galaxy or like in video games, people pull from Mass Effect a lot. So I find it interesting oh, yeah. you know, your twist tends to be, again, as you said, a little more rooted in, I think it's a little more rooted in fantasy meets sci-fi than like being sci-fi being your foundation of it. Yeah, yeah. To you then, is sci-fi then kind of like a good vessel for your message versus being like a fantasy thing? And I assume because it gives you different constraints of like ships and stuff versus like, we, when you think fantasy, we think like Middle Earth or like limited technology or stuff like that. Exactly. Like I, for, when I think fantasy, I think a point where people couldn't quite um, explain everything through science. So they just went through a like a reaction, uh, sort of like a like putting one reaction to whatever looks like caused it, you know, like a cause and effect kind of thing. So they're like, okay, this this is how that works, and then they kind of develop things from there. And they don't fully understand how all of this works, but they somehow manage to create these incredible magical devices and. And, and spells and, and and conjure like weird materials and creatures out of this. And that's sort of my idea of fantasy. And then my idea of the future in this particular world is they have figured out how everything works. So fantasy, like the fantasy aspect, the, the magical aspect isn't quite as relevant anymore. And therefore quite a lot of that is also lost. So a lot of the spells and the magic that may have been used in in the past, like 2,000 years in the past, has been lost in history. So when that not understanding how the universe works, but knowing how to do very specific, weird, magical things meets, we do understand how the universe works, but we haven't really investigated all this magical stuff from the past, really, because... You know, at some point it just became irrelevant. Like that clash is going to create is is hyperventilar. That is the game. So interesting to me that the way you kind of view this at so it reminds me of there's this like kind of this joke always that people hear that like if aliens are appear, religion is dead. And it kind of reminds me of that kind of like this old magic way, it's almost like the religion in like a more sense of like but it does something directly seen versus science being mm. this technology and emergingness of it i find that very interesting though it feels like you're naturally balancing the two or trying to have them fight each other um yeah I, it is going to be it, it's interesting you mentioned religion because like whenever there's like a major change right people will naturally say oh no no i don't 
I don't believe in that or I, I don't want that because people, they believe in whatever is familiar to them. So the political aspect that comes into this in Hyperventilar is very much going to be how does the galaxy react to these strange wizard beings suddenly being, being there in their time period. Makes sense. So we've spent obviously quite some time now kind of talking about what what is the game's world and it. I want to talk about kind of how we play this game. Can we So go on. Yeah, it's like you have, no, you, have no. you have something, you have something go on. No, so for how you play the game is like to me, it's not necessarily the most important part because if I could choose exactly how to make this game work the way like if i could like pick oh you know this this is like exactly the gameplay mechanics i want and this is exactly the kind of graphical style i want and this is like exactly the the technical foundation i'd want for this game or even just like okay this is the game engine i want to use i probably wouldn't be able to do that even if i had the technical skill i still wouldn't be able to do it all on my own so for me, I am trying to make the game as fun as possible to play with what I have. Um, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to get that out of the way first. You were asking something. No, that that actually makes sense and it's very interesting. So actually, I'm very curious then if that's the way you kind of all view this, if this is where you kind of view all of this and all that, why make it a game versus like more of an interactive film? Oh, because that that is very much what I wanted to make. I did know I wanted to make a game where you have branching storylines and where you can like influence the choices. Like you can essentially steer the direction of the story. Because on the one hand, okay, yes, you can probably create a more solid experience if you make it a film or if you make it like a book. But the problem is you lose that aspect of being able to feel like you have an, an effect on the universe, right, on, on that galaxy. And that is very much the thing I wanted to do with Hyperventilar. I wanted to make it so that you could actually choose whether, okay, these wizards, they're there on your ship. What do I want to do with them? Do I want to actually help them out? Do I want to just abuse them? <laughs> like like get them to use their powers to enhance me like do i want like use them to influence a particular faction within the game or do i basically just want to like get rid of them as fast as possible these are all options that to some degree will be in the game and that is very much something i like about uh the idea of making like a large open world that i can like put my stories into is that, okay, I'll write the stories, but you choose not just how you experience them, but also, if anything, just like in which order you experience them. And it feels more organic, it feels more natural, um, how you encounter these stories, right? Because it is, it is an open-world game, so there will be, you know, basic tasks for you to do as well. You'll be able to travel from world to world just transporting cargo. Like, you'll still be that small captain of a small cargo vessel as well on the side. You'll just be able to grow and, like, add all these stories to your journey as you're doing that. 
Yeah. Okay. No, that that is that's a very interesting kind of reasoning for that one. So I'm curious, kind of to talk about the kind of the game gaminess game of itself is. So obviously, we keep going back to your cargo vessel. Yours, this kind of when I picture a cargo vessel, I picture this like kind of unarmed, very weak ship, kind of in the galaxy of like if I see a big ship, I'm screwed. Uh, yeah, kind there of... there won't be like a lot of like armed space vessels in the game. It will mainly be transport ships and pirate ships, but they'll be like transport ships with like some guns mounted on top of it. But yeah, like most of the ships are not warships or anything. I was going to ask then, so kind of what is the level of control you kind of give the player over this ship? Kind of, can they go customize some more? Is it like a ship you give them? Do they have piloting on it? Kind of like what is to the player, how how personal is this cargo vessel? Um, I would say you can personalize it quite a bit. I mean, not only can you actually buy different ships. Um, like I mentioned, you can mount different um, like weapons and, and attachments to your ship. Your ship also acts as your inventory. You can put cargo in your cargo bay anywhere within the ship. Obviously, you can steer your ship around. You can fly it anywhere in the galaxy. You can uh, navigate within a local system, like you can fly it around. You have this sort of basic Newtonian physics that allow you to, you know, like like asteroids. Think think of the game asteroids, where you move your ship around like that, like those types of physics. Like that is the level of control you'll have on your ship. Then you'll be able to jump from system to system as well. Um, on top of that, like I said, customization, you'll be able to name your ship when you start the game. Uh, when you buy a new ship, you'll also be able to name your new ship. So I, I hope that answers your question. It definitely does. It's very interesting that kind of that the kind of balance there, especially you being, as we go back to, mostly a one-man army. It's always this game yeah. of like, how important is this? Like, do I really have to spend time? How much do players care? <laughs> Looking that's through true, that. that's true. Um, I think this the the way it started was I was going to have the spaceships that you could move around from like planet to planet. And then you would basically, everything you do there would just be through text. Uh, so you'd basically end up in a planet or a station and you'd be able to like, okay, I want to visit this planet or I want to scan this planet. And then everything that happened from that point on would just be in a text box. Um, at some point, I figured out, oh, you know, it'd be cool if you could at least dock to a station or something. Like you can manually dock to the station because you have like that that physics aspect where you sort of move and you glide through space, right? So I was like, okay, it'd be cool if you could have that sort of docking mechanic. Some point from that point on, I went like, oh, it'd be cool if, you know, you could actually visit the station and you could go inside your ship. And that was like in the early days of development when I was like, okay, I think I can do this now, but let's change like <laughs> the scope of the game a little so I, I know what I'm getting into. Um, and, and that's what you can do now. Now you can actually, you can visit your ship, like the interior of your ship, as well as, you know, pilot the, the outside of your ship. You can dock it to a station, then you can go inside your ship and then go inside the station, as well as if you go to a planet, you'll actually land on the planet, and you'll see your ship land on the planet, and your little player character will just walk around. Uh, you can 
control your player character as well. Obviously, like you don't. There's like very little predetermined in terms of where you can go and where you can go. There's so much there I feel like could be unpacked. Uh, one of the things I'm kind of curious, kind of looking at it then. So obviously you said there's some level of plan ex- exploration and kind of going through that one. If you had to pick, and I know I'm going to make you pick your, your, your favorite child here. What is kind of like of the planets in the game? Is there one that's like really your favorite or stands out to you? Um, well, I would say that it's probably the moon. Like one of the moons is basically just this little colony and outside like the moment you arrive there there's already like this little weird signal that pops up and there's like this this weird trade deal going down on the outskirts of the colony and like also with the music that i mentioned the music uh arbre noir it's a it's a german group that made the music like it, it adds so much atmosphere to this moon where you kind of feel like it's just you know it, it is a very uh, lonely place and i really like that like i, I think I, I i nailed the atmosphere on that moon wow that's kind of that's interesting i feel like moons are very much one of those that like either very iconic or you have the thing being like it feels like our moon like it's very much like it's always that fight there so hmm. Now that we're kind of talking, so as we're talking, it is January 5th. Uh, the game right now, yeah. it says on your Steam page, I'm going to see if you're speaking to it, is you're launching to early access on February 2nd? Yeah, so right now, February, this, like, start of February is my goal for launching um, the first game. So the first part of the game. So the first part of the game is basically going to be the multiplayer. Um, the reason for this is. I do need to keep developing the game for another six months at least just to get like the single player ready and to get some feedback on the multiplayer as well and at some point on the single player as well. And right now I'm just like, I've postponed the release date for this game like two or three times already. So I'm like, nope, I'm not doing that again. I actually need to release uh, something. And that is also why I actually started on the multiplayer aspect of the game, because it's a bit more repetitive, but it's also something people will probably be able to just enjoy either casually or just play play it a lot, but at least play it and not... Like, it for me, it's not something that requires constant additions of content. Like, it, it has a bit more of a traditional gameplay loop to it, the multiplayer. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, so so that's my yeah, that's my no that my, that, my that makes plan. that makes a lot of sense, kind of. So the game, as we said, comes out beginning February. Obviously, it sounds like you have some up in the air on this date. How long do you yeah. plan to be in early access for? Do you kind of have that in time frame in mind publicly, or is it kind of like you're just kind of going to see how the game does and kind of go from there? Um, it's a bit of both. Like I, I'm sort of my ballpark area is sort of six months. And then we'll see. It'll probably be six months in early access. And then from that point on, when the game comes out, I really do want to keep adding to this world. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily say that the game will be completely done 
at that point. Like the main storyline will be done and, you know, the game will be fully playable. But I, I still want to stick to my original idea of having this large open world where you can, where I can just write in stories and like create side quests and just, you know, I'm not even sure if it's going to be DLC or if I'll just put it in uh, as an update. Like, like for me, it's just as important that I can keep adding to this world as it is for me that the players are are happy with what they have. So, you know, I, I want to make it feature complete, but then half of the point of this project is for me to occasionally just be able to, to write more missions and to more stuff into this world. Okay, great. And then one last question. I know currency is always fun. What is kind of the current goal price for the game as it comes out in early access? Um, I would say, yeah, right now I've set it at about $10. Okay. Uh, so 10 yeah. I assume that's 10 US dollars or 10 pounds, and then it translates from there. Yes, 10 US dollars, and it sort of translates from there, yeah. I, always just... I think I did add a, a, what do you call that, a launch discount on Steam. So because it's early access, I do understand that people have some mistrust when it comes to early access. Um, and therefore, I, I do want to give people an incentive that, you know, if you are an early adopter, maybe you should, like some of that risk should be mitigated. Okay, no, that makes sense. So yeah, so people who then keep an eye out for the game, obviously they can hop on Steam right now and wishlist the game, as we all understand, super important uh, to getting games out there. Uh, yes, yes. So again, one more time for the people, can you tell them what is the name of the game and then any other spot they should go check it out? Well, it's Hyperventilar, and you can find us on our website, uh, Um But I would yeah, recommend the Steam page, of course. There you'll be able to find a link to our Discord, as well as, I'm pretty sure I have a ModDB page, or an IndieDB page, sorry. And there is also, yeah, there's the Discord, which I'd say is probably the best place to get updates uh, on the game and sort of little development insights. Perfect. Well, again, uh, thank you for taking time to talk to me, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your night. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, and same to you. This podcast was a production of The SWW Show. To learn more, go to theswwshow.com. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at The SWW Show. You can follow me at Mikey underscore Maroney. You can follow AJ at Boy. Remember, new episodes premiere on Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time on anchor.fm slash SWW and podcast services around the globe.